Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, we're glad you're here and you're our guest. And if you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. And today we're starting a brand new sermon series entitled, If God Gave You a Brain, It's Okay to Use It in Church. Over the past several years, we have seen an explosion of disinformation in our society, of propaganda, conspiracy theories. Um, We've witnessed uh, the growth of violence against people who are perceived as different in any way and, and a rise in distrust of science and medical science, including advice given during COVID-19 to wear a mask or get vaccinated. And it seems as though people who are self-professing Christians are often among the loudest voices propagating this disinformation and acting on it and voting on it. And while COVID-19 has spiraled out of control, there are self-professing Christians who have uh, opposed science, opposed medical science, opposed doctors, even mocked doctors like Dr. Fauci, who have urged Americans to take common sense precautions. And, And we've seen how some professing Christians have entered a new realm of this fusion of religion and politics in what certainly appears to be a kind of nationalism that was not there uh, even a few years ago. Even Even though we could see the roots of it, we've entered something new, some new phase of this connection between religion and politics in the United States. We probably all have friends or family who have expressed views that we are repulsed by. Racist views, political views, uh, their views um, that, that accept the propaganda and spread the propaganda. And, and we've been shocked to hear where people are coming from. How many people have you blocked on your social media accounts this year? There have been strained relationships with, with friends and family, or maybe, maybe those relationships have, have been broken. So self-professing Christians have played an important role in the damage that has been done to American society over the past few years. And that has prompted more thinking Christians to ask some questions. Even people who are committed Christians who want to follow Jesus Christ and they want to be a part of a church have found themselves asking questions like, can a thinking person be a Christian in the United States? Can a thinking, compassionate, culturally aware person be a part of a church? in the United States. Have you asked yourselves questions like that? Even if you haven't said it out loud, maybe you have expressed it out loud, but have you asked yourself that question? Can I really remain a Christian in the United States? Can I follow Jesus Christ or can I be a part of a church here? So I believe the bottom line question behind that is, can followers of Jesus use reason Can we use our brains as we follow Jesus Christ? Or do we have to just accept blind faith and be a part of culture war, political manipulation that uses religion toward political ends in the United States? Is there a way for thinking, compassionate Christians to follow Jesus Christ and use our brains 
And can we create communities that are committed to that kind of faith? So appreciate you being with us this morning. And during this series, we're talking about today, the Bible and your brain, the relationship between faith and reason. And then next week, surviving disinformation and propaganda. That's the Sunday before the presidential inauguration. January 24th, interpreting the Bible intelligently. And on that day, we'll welcome special guest Jezekiel Batalzi. And then on January 31st, the Bible and science, including the Bible and medical science. On February 7th, Christians, vaccines, and conspiracy theories. And then finally, on February 14th, we'll wrap up the series with special guest Pete Enns. So please invite friends and join us every Sunday. Please share these services on your social media, your Facebook page, and so on. And we can spread the word if we believe that there is a way of following Jesus and using our brains and not just going on blind faith. Thanks for being with us this morning. And now we have to process the events that took place this past Wednesday. Of course, the past several years in the United States have been difficult, but this past Wednesday was the physical manifestation of the attack on our institutions, the attack on American norms and on American ideals that we have been seeing for the past several years. Last Wednesday was a traumatic event for our nation. It was a low point, at least in modern American history. And we need to process how we are dealing with it, how we feel about it, and what, what happened this past Wednesday. So while many of us expected this past week to be contentious because the vote would be certified, we were shocked and disturbed and, and cut to the heart, I think, by the events that we saw when the U.S. Capitol building was breached and damaged uh, and members of Congress were evacuated for their own safety. And not only was it a criminal act, but it, it symbolized this breakdown that many of us have felt in American society. And what was originally termed a protest became something much more than that. What we saw on Wednesday was an act of domestic terrorism. It was an attack on our country. Many members of Congress have called it, called it an insurrection. As rioters stormed the Capitol building and, and at least one of the rioters carry, uh, carrying a Confederate flag through the halls of the Capitol building. As, as of today, five persons have lost their lives, including one of the Capitol police officers and arrests have begun as some of those rioters or domestic terrorists have been identified. The events of this past Wednesday were incited by the President of the United States and encouraged by him and based on a conspiracy theory, a piece of propaganda, a lie that he won the presidential election even though he lost it by over 7 million votes and that was confirmed in almost 60 court cases around the country and the Supreme Court uh, refused to even hear the case. But even with those facts, there were still people who were willing to believe these lies and become violent out of their commitment to this propaganda and disinformation. In 1765, the French philosopher Voltaire wrote something uh, that translates into English roughly like this. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. It is vitally important 
for us to acknowledge that Voltaire, when he wrote that statement, was talking about religious beliefs. He was making the point that people who live by blind faith and accept claims without any evidence can do great harm to themselves and to other people. My guess is you're watching partly because you believe that. You recognize the danger in that and you don't want to live that kind of a life with blind faith. And, and there are countless examples throughout history of people who believed absurdities and they ended up committing atrocities. Maybe you were harmed by religion earlier in your life or recently, or you've been harmed this year by the disinformation and people who blindly followed that and they hurt you or, or you miss having those relationships in your life because you lost those people to these absurdities. One of the things we say here at the well often is bad theology hurts people. We want to examine our beliefs and know that what we believe is based on evidence as much as it is available to us and the results of our beliefs can be confirmed as good by evidence that we see around us and that they lead to human flourishing and they affirm human dignity and they promote goodness and beauty in the world. That's the kind of faith and, and belief that we want to hold on to. And the tragic events of this week make that kind of faith even more needed. So this series is not just about thinking. With a title like, if God gave you a brain, you know, it, it can make us think that this is going to be some kind of academic exercise, like we're just going to wax philosophical for six weeks. And that's not really what this series is because our brains and our hearts are connected, at least they, they should be. The way we think influences the way we feel. So even as we talk about thinking about our faith, it is every bit as much about how our faith affects us emotionally, how it causes us to live, how it causes us to treat other people, what it does to our relationships and our emotional connection with other people. And so it's, it's important that during this series, we also acknowledge the way that our beliefs and our thoughts influence the way we feel. And after this week, we just need to process what happened this week. And so I'm going to ask you to type something in the comments and we can help each other process the emotion of what we have experienced this week. Would you please type in the comments right now how you felt when you saw what took place at the Capitol? And I'm going to ask you to format it something like this. I felt and then you put the emotion in there, whatever emotion you felt, when, and then you write whatever you saw or experienced that caused you to feel that emotion. So for example, I felt angry when I saw rioters damaging the Senate chamber. Uh, just as an example, I felt the emotion, whatever it was for you, when, and then type whatever it was that, you know, that caused that emotion in you. I felt sad when I saw so many people believing lies. As another example, what is that for you? How did you feel when you saw what happened this past Wednesday at the Capitol? Would you type that into the comments now? Would you share that with us? Because as you name your emotions that you felt, you may help other people process their emotions. Maybe they're having trouble naming all the ways that they feel. I know we could all write probably 15 or 20 
of these statements about all the different emotions that we felt, but if you can name it and articulate it, it might help somebody else to process how they're feeling about that. So would you type that in the comments right now? When I felt, and then the emotion, when, and then whatever you saw that caused that emotion in you. I'll share one. I felt a profound sense of grief when I saw that young woman get shot when she was trying to breach that other part of the Capitol building and climb through the window. There were armed guards pointing a gun at her and, and shouting. And for some reason, that crowd that was trying to break in, they hoisted her up through the window and she was shot. I felt grief when I saw her shooting because I, I realized that she died for a lie. And I, I watched that video of her shooting probably 10 times, processing that grief, how far all this has gone. What would that be for you? Would you type that in the comments? I felt whatever emotion it was when, and then just describe whatever it was that, that brought that emotion up in you. Thank you for sharing. And as we read those comments right now, we can identify with each other and empathize with each other. And maybe it helps, helps us process our own emotions. So today we're talking about the Bible and your brain, the relationship between faith and reason. And in the first book of the Bible, the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, uh, the scripture tells us that we were created in God's image. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Now, so many people believe Genesis is uh, an anti-science book because of the creation account in Genesis, and they think it's literal. And if it's literal, that means evolution is a, a lie from Satan or something like that. And so it's difficult for some Christians to get any meaning out of the book of Genesis because their view of the book is clouded by this faith versus science debate that is totally unnecessary. And we're going to talk about that later on in this, in this series. But the high point of this creation poem in Genesis chapter one, and it is nearly poetry, the high point of that creation account is that God creates humans in God's image. In the ancient world, that was a description that was only applied to kings and queens who claimed that they were created in the image of God. They were the physical manifestation of God. But in, in Genesis, we're told that applies to you. That applies to all people, that all human beings are created in God's image. And a lot of ink has been spilled over the centuries writing about what that might mean. But certainly one of the things it means is that human beings have dignity that is God-given, you have the ability to create life and perpetuate the human race. You have the ability to, to make moral decisions, to decide right from wrong. And we all have the ability to care for God's creation. That's one of the things that Adam and Eve are told in, in the creation account. So Genesis sets in motion this narrative that you and I have the ability, the God-given ability, to think deeply about life and about who we want to be and how we relate to God, to other people, to the, to the planet, to everybody and everything all around us. We can make choices with that brain that God has given to us. We can make choices to rise above the violence and instinctual tribalism 
that threatens to pull the human race apart and causes us to, to attack each other so much. We can think deeply about life and how we want to live and who we want to be, and we can rise above those temptations. Certainly, that's one of the things that Genesis 1.27 means when it says that we're created in the image of God. God gave you a brain for a reason, and God gave you a brain so that you could use it. Now, a large number of Christians seem to think that God wants blind faith, and I define blind faith like this. Blind faith is believing what you are told without questioning it or trying to make sense of it. Blind faith is just accepting whatever you're told by somebody, some authority figure in your life, even if they're claiming it's from the Bible, it's some person that is telling you to believe something. And blind faith is just accepting whatever they spoon feed you without questioning it, without thinking about whether it's correct or not, without examining it or trying to make sense of it. That's how I define blind faith. And so maybe a pastor told you something one time in a sermon or maybe one-on-one and it kind of seemed odd. You thought, hmm, that's weird. And how many times has that happened during sermons? Hopefully not during mine. I would understand if it has. I probably have said some weird things unintentionally, but how many times has that happened to you when some, some authority figure told you something and you thought, man, that's kind of strange. I don't know if I believe that or not. But then you felt pressured to accept it or at least to pretend that you believed it. Have you been a part of a church community like that or in your own family? Is there an authority figure in your family and you kind of had to walk on eggshells or at least pretend that you thought this or or at Thanksgiving dinner some year, you know, somebody says something about politics and you feel like, oh, I just have to be quiet and keep the peace because I just have to kind of accept by blind faith that they're right or at least act like they're right and just keep the peace. There are so many people who are self-professing Christians who believe that God wants blind faith that we are supposed to believe in spite of any evidence. And sometimes that even goes so far as to uh, assert that, that we should look at evidence and then not believe it because there is evidence. Have you encountered that? For some people, the more evidence there is, the less they believe it. There's some psychological dynamic involved here as well, but, but so many Christians believe that God wants blind faith. And they can quote scriptures, scriptures that seem to assert the idea that we should just have blind faith. So a well-meaning Christian might quote 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Have you heard that one before? And, and they, they think that means, well, I don't need evidence. I don't need to think about anything. I just walk by faith, no matter what my eyes or my brain tell me. Or Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the evidence of things not yet seen. So there might be people who are like, I don't need any evidence because I just believe. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't need to see any evidence. I don't need to think about whether that's true or not, or science, or history, or archaeology, or, or philosophy. I don't need to think about it at all. I just believe, even though I don't see any evidence. Or they quote Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And they say, well, there it is right there. It's plain as day. You, you trust in God, not your own brain. 
So if you're if you're reasonable faculties, your 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 uh, faculties to, to reason uh, tell you something. Well, no, you don't trust that. You you just trust whatever God says, which ends up being whatever some pastor has told you God says, or some book or some authority figure in your life. Well, there it is, right there. I'm not supposed to. I'm not supposed to think about it. I just trust God. Or even uh, the Gospel of John, chapter twenty. When doubting Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus, you remember Jesus appeared to the disciples and, and Thomas wasn't there. And the disciples told him that Jesus had risen from the dead and he, he didn't believe it. He said, I won't believe until I can see the scars of crucifixion on his body. And Jesus appears to Thomas and, and Thomas sees the scars and he says, now I believe. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And there are people who read a scripture like that and they think, see, again, I don't need to see anything with my own eyes. I don't need to think about it. I don't need evidence. I just believe no matter what my eyes tell me or what my brain tells me. They think that faith is the opposite of evidence. They, they believe in blind faith. Well, a little later in the sermon, I'm going to talk about those verses in context and about what they actually mean and you'll be able to see what real faith really means. Now, some of us were raised in American fundamentalist Christianity, or maybe you weren't raised in it, but you have contact with it now. You have coworkers or friends or family members who are, who are American fundamentalist Christians. And, and if you grew up that way, you were taught that the Bible is inerrant, that it is without error. And of course, there's always the phrase, in the original manuscripts. The original manuscripts of the Bible are without error, which we don't have, by the way. We don't have the original manuscripts of the Bible. We have fragments of early copies of those original manuscripts, and then later scribes copied uh, the full manuscripts on scrolls, animal skins that were, that were uh, rolled, rolled up and stored in, in houses of worship in different locations across the Middle East. We have some of those those earlier scrolls or fragments of them, but we don't have the originals. But anyway, biblical inerrancy supposedly means that the Bible is accurate in all it affirms, including history and science. So like in Genesis, Genesis chapter one says that God created the world in six days. Well, that means evolution is a lie. And there are people who, who stake their entire identity on being a Christian who believes the Bible. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And they'll argue to the death that modern science is a conspiracy. And of course, you can see how easy it is to jump from evolution to vaccines. And these doctors are, are just trying to control our lives by having us wear a mask and, and avoid eating in restaurants. And it's just not very far of a jump when you're already skeptical of science. But biblical inerrancy is a relatively modern phenomenon. There was actually a conference in Chicago in 1979 where the doctrine of biblical inerrancy was formalized. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. In 1979, think of the 2000 year history of Christianity. And in 1979, biblical inerrancy became a code that was, that was you know, written down on a document. I was alive and watching cartoons at that time. That's how new this doctrine of, of biblical inerrancy is. And there are so many people who believe, or at least they're pressured to believe, 
that the Bible is accurate in all it affirms, and that necessarily leads to blind faith. First of all, when it says it's, uh, the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts, we literally don't have those, so you can't look at them. So you have to blindly accept that statement. There's no way of proving or disproving that statement. But when you believe that the Bible is inerrant, when you read something in the Bible, even if it clashes with modern science or it doesn't seem to square with archaeology or history, you have to ignore the sciences or history, of course, that are disciplines built by people using their brains over the years and over the centuries to gain knowledge. You have to ignore human reason and the repository of human knowledge throughout history in order to believe those things. So in, in my view, more than any other religious belief, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy pressures people to have blind faith. By the way, one of the persons who did not sign that Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy was Billy Graham because he believed it was unnecessary, it went too far, and it was divisive. As conservative as Billy Graham was, he refused to sign that statement. But so many of us were raised in, in a religious environment like that, that promoted blind faith based on the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. So uh, for a thinking person who wants to be a Christian and they want to follow Jesus Christ and they want, to, they want the Bible to be a guide for their lives, well, then what do we do with the Bible? If, if it's not inerrant, there are some people who think, well, if it's not inerrant and I, I literally just pick or choose what I believe, then how can it be a guide for my life? So I just want to talk about that for a couple of minutes. There was a, a guy a few years ago, I was in a church um, back in Ohio, I was an associate pastor there, and we promoted this read, the, read through the Bible in a year program to the congregation. Doesn't that sound exciting? Read through the Bible in a year. Like we had logos and yeah, we just made this. Anyway, so lots of people did it. God bless them. And they committed to this reading plan of reading through the Bible in a year. And uh, I was in my office one day and a, and a guy kind of peeked in and, and he was a middle-aged businessman. He would probably say that he had been a casual Christian for a lot of his life. Like maybe he went to church off and on, but he, ha he hadn't really read the Bible. He didn't take his faith that seriously, but he was getting to a point in his life where he wanted to take it more seriously. He wanted to think about his faith and be, become a more committed follower of Jesus. And so he, he peeked his head in my office. And he said, hey, you have a second to talk? And I said, sure. And he came in and he said, I've been, I've been going through this Bible reading plan. He's like, I've been a good boy and I've been, I've been reading, reading the Bible. I said, oh, that's great. Awesome. What do you think? And, and he said, um, he got up to Deuteronomy which is in the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch. And uh, that means he made it through the begats in Genesis. Like that's where most people just give up where they get to the, the, the genealogies, the begats. It's like literary quicksand. And you're like, somebody begats somebody and you can't pronounce the names and it's, you just see people sink as they try to read the Bible. He made it through the begats and he got all the way to Deuteronomy. And I'm not going to put... Uh, the verse on the screen, but he got to a verse in Deuteronomy where God commands the people of Israel to exterminate a people group called the Canaanites. 
God commands them to kill everyone, even the kids, and then burn their cities to the ground. God commanded the people to violently take over their cities, commit genocide, and burn the city to the ground. And the word that's used for for burning the city is a word that uh, means a burnt offering. And like the smoke from the burnt offering rises up to God and God is pleased by that. So God would be pleased if they killed their enemies, burned their cities, and then the smoke would be like a fragrant offering to God. He said, I didn't know that was in the Bible. He said, what, what's going on there? And he was serious. He's somebody who wanted to take his faith seriously. And he's like, I didn't know the Bible said that. And it, he's like, if, if the Bible says things like that, I'm not so sure that I want to be a part of that. And he said, you know, of course, he's like, Jesus says to love your enemies. And he's like, I know that like the, the prophets in the Old Testament talk about justice and doing what's right by everybody. And he's like, so, so we have genocide in one place and then we have what, you know, love your enemies, pray for people who hurt you in another part of the Bible. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? And he and I sat down for a few minutes and we had a good conversation about what the Bible is and what it isn't. I just want to share highlights of what we talked about. Um, during that conversation. So first of all, for, for a person who's a thinking Christian and they want to be a follower of Jesus and they want, to be, they want the Bible to be a guide in their lives, we have to recognize the Bible is a diverse collection of books written by many authors living in different places over a period of perhaps a thousand years. So for folks who want to believe that the Bible is inerrant, like it's God's thesis paper, like God was in a master's program and this is his master's thesis and he just kind of dropped the Bible on us and said, hey, here's my book. Whatever it says, do it, believe it. It's that simple. The reality of what the Bible is, is that it's not one book. It's a collection of books. And for those of you who've been around the well for a while, you've heard me say this before. What do we call a collection of books? A library. The Bible is a library. It's not one book. It's a collection of books written by many authors living in different places in different times. And so when when you have people who want to view the Bible as this one cohesive book, first of all, it wasn't bound between two covers as one book in its original form. It was written on scrolls. The books of the Bible, the various books of the Bible were written on animal skins, scrolls that were rolled up. And the Bible is written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The book of Daniel starts in Hebrew, switches to Aramaic, and then switches back to Hebrew. So if God were dictating the book of Daniel to its author, for some reason God switched languages in the middle of dictating the book. And so for those who believe that the Bible is inerrant and you just read it and accept it and it's blind faith, well, there are some things that begin to challenge that. Some biblical authors have better grammar than others. For example, the Gospel of Mark, it's, it's written in Greek, but it's thought that, it's written by, that it was written by somebody who was not a native Greek speaker. So they could do a better job than I could writing in a different language, but the grammar in the Gospel of Mark is just not that great. And Matthew and Luke take large sections from Mark 
but they clean up Mark's grammar. The sections are almost identical. They're just better written. Um, the Apostle Paul uses run-on sentences, while other authors don't do that. So you can see there's a different writing style. There are different languages in the various books of the Bible. These, these authors lived at different times. Can you imagine a book being written a thousand years ago and then a book being written now and then those two books are put together and then somebody reads those and they expect them to agree on everything when there's a period of a thousand years and maybe that author a thousand years ago lived on the other side of the planet in a different culture. But there are people who they believe that the Bible is one book like, like a thesis, like a constitution. And they expect everything to agree with everything else, but that's just not what we have when we look at the evidence, when we actually read the Bible. And there are different views of God and different views of faith and different views of salvation, depending on what part of the Bible you're reading. Leviticus presents one view. Isaiah sees things somewhat differently. Or Matthew and James versus Paul. There are different views of who God is and what salvation means. It appears that there are pieces of propaganda in the Bible, like that scripture in Deuteronomy commanding genocide. It's thought that that was actually written by uh, the court of the king at the time to get rid of his enemies. That's the, that's the modern consensus, or that's the consensus of modern biblical scholarship, that that command to kill the Canaanites is a piece of propaganda that ended up in the Bible. So there are parts of the Bible that seem to demand blind faith. And then there are parts of the Bible that command horrifying things. So that's what we have when we actually look at the Bible for what it is. And, and this gentleman that you know, came into my office who was reading through the Bible in a year, that's kind of a highlight of what we talked about. And he... Uh, I mean, he, he definitely had food for thought, but at the same time, he was disturbed by the things that he had read in the Bible. He remained in the church. He'd been in church for a long time, and I think he continued that Bible reading plan. But based on the conversation that he and I had, I'm not sure that he would have continued to want to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ without knowing some of these things because he just couldn't square what he was reading in the Bible with this idea that he had been given that the Bible is supposed to be inerrant, we just read it and do it. And he, he just, of course, couldn't sign on to that kind of thing. So for people who want to be a thinking Christian, thankfully there's another choice than blind faith or believing that, that the Bible is inerrant. For people who want the Bible to be a guide in their lives and they want to follow Jesus Christ, but they can't do blind faith, they, they can recognize that there are parts of the Bible that we don't agree with. There are parts of the Bible that were written by authors who were a product of their environment, just like we all are, who are part of their culture, and they wrote based on what was influencing them and, and what their assumptions were at the time. The most prominent New Testament scholar in the world, N.T. Wright, writes all of the Bible is culturally conditioned. It's not like there are some parts of the Bible that are, that are dropped straight from God, straight out of heaven, and that's just easy. They don't need to be interpreted, and we just do that, and then the other parts we ignore. All of the Bible is culturally conditioned. 
And if that's true, then the Bible is not an inerrant rule book. It's not something dictated by God that demands blind faith. The Bible is something much better than that, much richer than that, much more interesting than that. Perhaps the Bible is a record of wisdom traditions, both with common themes and differing viewpoints. If the Bible is written by God or essentially dictated by God and it's, it's inerrant in the original manuscripts that we don't have, then you have no choice but to read something and then just believe it or to pretend that you do or to jump through all kinds of interpretive hoops to try to harmonize things in the Bible that do not agree with each other but try to pretend that they do. And that's what a lot of folks end up trying to do to prop up this, this doctrine that was written down in 1979. But if you believe the Bible is a record of human beings wrestling with God, wrestling with the Spirit of God in their lives, and trying to figure out how to live well, and, and figure out life, and, 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 and rise above our baser instincts, and try to live wisely, well, then that opens up a whole new world of possibilities for your spiritual life. That the authors of the scripture were people just like you, who were, were open and listening, and, and at the same time, had their own imperfections, and were doing their best in the cultures they lived in to figure out what it means to be good, and to live a good life, and to live wisely. And then, if that's true, then you can look at the Bible as part of your spiritual journey, the record of your spiritual ancestors. You can identify with, with characters in the Bible and what they thought and what they were feeling. And, and you can learn from them. You can see some things you would never want to do. And you can see new practices that you would like to adopt in your life. But the, the Bible becomes something living and interesting and something worth studying and, and something that truly can be a guide for somebody who wants to be a thinking follower of Jesus Christ. And here's what else that means. And this is tough for some folks, especially if you were raised in the kind of environment I was raised in. It means that when you read the Bible as a thinking person, understanding that the Bible is culturally conditioned, then you recognize that there are some things the Bible can't teach you. Let's just point out the obvious. The Bible can't help you figure out what kind of smartphone to buy. The Bible's not going to help you there. The Bible is not going to help a doctor treat cancer. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. Here's one to think about now. The Bible does not have any knowledge of democracy. And in a country when so many people believe in inerrancy, and they just want to do what they see in the Bible, democracy is not there. That's something to keep in mind as we go forward now in the days ahead in the United States. But the Bible has knowledge of all kinds of wisdom traditions and ways of living and thoughts about God and thoughts about relationships and, and reflections about who we are that can inspire us and be a guide for our lives. For example, if you want to learn about grace and forgiveness and love. The Apostle Paul whew, is a top-notch resource. For it is by grace that you've been saved, 
That's not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. God cares for you. You matter to God and God gives grace to you. That is good news. And because of that, we can give grace to other people. Do you need grace in your life? Are there relationships in your life where grace is needed? You need grace from somebody else or you need to give grace or love like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. If you want to learn, learn about grace and love, the Apostle Paul is a great resource for that. If you want to understand human sexuality, Paul did not have the research about human sexuality available to him that we have available to us now. If you want to understand slavery and what a, a, moral, a morally right view of slavery is, you can tell in the scripture Paul is not a fan of slavery. Paul undermines slavery. But Abraham Lincoln went farther than Paul did regarding slavery. Paul never imagined a world where slavery would be illegal. That didn't happen for another 1,800 years after Paul. So, for example, uh, you can read some things in the Bible and know that, oh, I need this in my life. And this is a repository of wisdom for me. This is inspiring. This, this is life-giving to me. I need this. And the Bible can change your life. And then there are other things you read and you think, you know, I just don't, I, I don't think in his culture he had a, the same understanding that we have now. A friend of mine tweeted recently, I can't describe how free I felt once I realized I could disagree with Paul. Now, for some of you, that just sounds like heresy. Some of us were raised in environments where that is just something that would, would just be unconscionable. Unthinkable that somebody could say that. But if we realize that the Bible is a diverse collection of books, and we believe that somehow God inspired its authors, spoke to them in some way, but at the same time, they're human beings who are part of their own cultures. The Bible is not inerrant on matters of science and history and, and things that the Bible is not even about. Genesis is not about science. We'll talk about that here in a few weeks. But, and we miss out on what the Bible actually does have to say to us when we put it in this box and expect it to be something that it's not. But when we can read the Bible in its diversity as a record of people just like us wrestling with what it means to be good and what it means to be human, and what it means to, to promote goodness and beauty and truth in this world and to live well, then it's, it's, it inspires us to be the best we can be. And I would, I would suggest it's the only way that it could be a guide for our lives. So there's some people, before we move on quickly, who would say, well, psh, if you just pick and choose what you believe, how could the Bible be a guide for my life? How could it be an authoritative guide if I can just pick and choose what it says? Well, here's the truth. Everybody picks and chooses what they accept from Scripture, even people who don't admit they do. So the only, the only difference is whether they admit it or not. So when's the last time that you heard somebody who believes the Bible is inerrant and they just kind of have blind faith? When is the last time they committed genocide against the Canaanites? Right? When's the last time they sold their possessions and gave everything to the poor? When is the last time 
they refuse to eat shellfish or shave the corners of their beard, like Leviticus tells them to. When is the last time they wore a bonnet in church? Like the New Testament seems to suggest women should, at least. When is the last time they beat their child with a rod? Hopefully never. Those are all things that are commanded in the Bible. Everybody picks or chooses what they want to believe and what is authoritative and what is a guide for their lives, even if they don't admit it. So the Bible can be a guide for somebody who wants to be a thinking follower of Jesus. The Bible is a record of wisdom traditions, both with common themes and differing viewpoints. And all of the Bible is culturally conditioned. It's not a source of certainty for people who are looking for a rule book, who just don't want to think about life and just believe everything in simple black and white terms. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Some people have a psychological need for certainty. They kind of feel safe if they can just pretend that they just read the Bible and it's so easy and it doesn't require interpretation. Alan Jones is an Episcopal priest who wrote, The opposite of faith isn't doubt. It's certainty. The opposite of faith is not asking questions. The opposite of faith is blind faith. It's, it's pretending that you can be certain about things that you have no way of being certain about. Blind faith is not real faith. So the Bible is a record of human beings just like us wrestling with what it means to live wisely, to have wisdom. And with common themes in the Bible, yes, but also differing viewpoints. And all of the Bible is culturally conditioned. So it's not a source of certainty for people who have this psychological need to be certain about everything and, and pretend that it's black and white and simple all the time. It's something better than that. Something where we really can use our brains and interpret it and wrestle with it and talk about it in community and in, in church services and in connect groups and with friends and figure out, hey, what, what does this have to say to my life? The Bible is so much more than that. So I just wanted to wrap up quickly by looking at those, those verses that we cited earlier as verses that you know, somebody who promotes blind faith might quote uh, defending blind faith. So first of all, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we, walk, or we live by faith, not by sight. The context of that verse is having hope when people around us are dying. It's the hope that there is something more beyond this life, which of course is a faith statement. We don't have evidence for the afterlife, but it's the statement that this life is not all there is. And so when people are grieving, the context of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 is, you can have hope in your grief because we live by faith, not by sight. Even though we don't see those people around us anymore, we can have some kind of hope and faith that we can see them again. And so it is a faith statement about the afterlife, but it's not a blanket statement that we just believe things without evidence and that we don't use our brains. It's about having hope when we're grieving the loss of people that we love. That's relevant here during the middle of a pandemic when so many of us have lost people that we love. The real meaning of that verse is meant to give comfort to people who are grieving. 
Uh, that's also the context of John chapter 20, when doubting Thomas won't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead until he sees Jesus' scars. And, and Jesus says, you've, you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What's the context of that verse? The resurrection. It's, it's not a blanket statement about believing things without evidence. Jesus says here, you, Thomas, you believe that I rose from the dead because you saw my scars. Blessed are those who believe that I rose from the dead, even though they haven't seen my scars. I mean, that's the real statement that is made there by Jesus. That's the context of that verse. So that verse is about believing in the resurrection of Jesus. I haven't seen the videos, neither have you. It's a faith statement that Jesus was raised from the dead, but it's not a blanket statement that we just believe everything that we hear without evidence and that we're anti-science and that we, sh we shouldn't believe doctors when they tell us to wear a mask and that evolution is a lie. That is not what Jesus is saying in that verse. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, faith is the evidence of things not yet seen. Here's what that verse actually says. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. The verse actually tells us what it's about, and it's the word that's left out when people quote that verse. It's about hope. Again, it's like the, the first verse that we talked about. It's about hope when you don't see the whole picture. You don't know how things are going to play out. We can't predict the future. And so this, the context of this verse is about having hope even though we don't know how everything is going to turn out. Do you think that's a relevant verse for us as Americans right now? That we can, even though we're, we don't have evidence that everything's going to work out okay for our country, we can choose to believe that there are better days ahead and we can work for that. And we can, we can have hope. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen, that we can make this country better for all of us. In context, that's a verse we desperately need right now. If you're, if you're sick, if you're, if you're struggling with COVID, if you're battling cancer, faith and, and hope is the evidence of things not yet seen. There are people who have made it before and you can do it too. Even though we can't predict the future, we can have hope. That's what this verse is about. It's an awesome verse that inspires us to have hope that things can get better, even though things look pretty bad right now. That's a verse we all need. And, and, and finally, Proverbs 3, uh, verses 5 through 6, that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight, or He will direct your paths. There are people who read that and they think that means, oh, lean not on your own understanding. Don't use your brain. Don't, don't ask questions. Don't think about anything. Just believe whatever some authority figure tells you God says. Proverbs 3 is teaching the opposite of that. Proverbs 3 is the opposite of blind faith. The, bo the book of Proverbs is wisdom literature. Proverbs chapter 3 uses the word wise or wisdom five times. And it's about thinking beyond our own assumptions. When, when somebody has told us something and we just assume it's true, or we've, we've heard some kind of propaganda, 
Proverbs 3 is about don't just trust whatever you've heard or whatever, you've, uh, what are, whatever you assume, but be open to God's guidance. Be open to wisdom. Search for wisdom. Question your assumptions. Examine what you believe. Proverbs 3 is an anti-propaganda verse. It is the opposite of blind faith. For example, verses 21 and 22 in Proverbs 3 say, My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. The chapter says to acknowledge God, honor God, treat the people around us with kindness. The point is to not assume that you already know everything and you've got it all figured out. Be open to God's wisdom. And I have to share Proverbs 3, verses 29 through 31, especially this week in America. Look at these verses. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse anyone for no reason when they have done you no harm. Do not envy the violent or choose any of their ways. Proverbs 3 is teaching the opposite of blind faith. It's teaching wisdom that America desperately needs right now. So real faith is not blind faith. Real faith is the opposite of blind faith. And I would define real faith like this. If you're somebody who is wondering if you can even be a Christian, a follower of Jesus now in the United States with the way that religion is being used, I want to share this with you. Real faith is trusting God to help you live wisely. It's acknowledging that the Bible is not an inerrant thesis paper dictated by God, but it's a record of people just like us wrestling with what it means to live wisely. And they were products of their own environment just like we are. All of the Bible is culturally conditioned, but we can read it and we can use our God-given brains as people created in the image of God to wrestle with that text as we wrestle with God now, just like they did trying to live wisely and question our own assumptions and rise above this tribalism and, and the, the lower instincts that we see tearing America apart right now. We can rise above those things and think deeply about how we're living and choose to live wisely with each other. So as we begin this series about thinking deeply about what we believe, uh, our nation is being pulled apart by disinformation and propaganda and conspiracy theories. And there are people who are following that disinformation with blind faith, just blindly accepting whatever they're told. And we are clearly seeing the harm that it's doing to our country. God has called us to more than that. God does not want you to have blind faith. God has given you a brain so that you could use it. God has given you reason and intelligence so that you could wrestle with the text of Scripture, so that you could be open to God's guidance in your life and think deeply about who we are and, and what it means to live well and live wisely. God didn't give you a brain and then expect you not to use it or you should feel bad about thinking or asking questions. God gave you a brain so that you can use it to pursue wisdom and live wisely. 
invite you to pray with me. God, thank you for these scriptures that are often misinterpreted, but in their context, they teach the opposite of blind faith. They call us, yes, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and to have hope in the next life, and those are faith statements. But they're not blanket statements that uh, instruct us not to use our brains, not think, or to be anti-science, to be anti-evidence, to be against reason. Faith is not the enemy of science. Faith is not the enemy of reason. In fact, the opposite of real faith is blind faith. It's impossible certainty and, and the psychological safety that some folks derive from pretending that they can be certain about things they have no way of knowing. That's not what real faith is. Real faith is being open, being willing to use our brains and ask questions and trusting God as a source of wisdom. We can wrestle with the scripture, knowing that what we're reading was written by people who are wrestling with God too. But as we ask questions and we think and we feel and we process our thoughts and our emotions together, we can help each other to discover what real wisdom looks like, what it looks like to live wisely, to live well. And as we start this series, God, we're doing that right now as a community. We thank you for everybody who is a part of it. We pray your blessings on our lives this week. We pray that you would help us process the emotion we're feeling right now about what's happening in America and that you would help us to have faith that we can follow Jesus in the United States, even though religion is being politicized and manipulated and used the way that it is. We don't have to go along with that. Real faith means asking questions and rising above that and living with wisdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.